0: Welcome to the Payments Podium podcast hosted by the Payments Professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show.
1: Hey, everybody. Payments Professor here, and I am so excited to bring you back to the Payments Podium today. I've got some guests on today, and we're going to talk about fraud indicators, red flags. What are the indicators? What are the things that, you know, maybe you should be on the lookout for fraud taking place now what kind of fraud is going to be an interesting question on this too is it fraud within a business and an organization could it actually be detected can you do something about it well before i go any further i have paul and i have sarah beth with me and i'm going to let them introduce themselves really quickly and of course ladies first sarah beth would you tell us a little bit about who you are and and how you got here today
0: Absolutely. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. This is my favorite topic and I just can't wait to get started. And I mean that literally. So my name is Sarah Beth Majette and I am a manager in the security risk and controls practice of the firm Warren Averett. And I've been here about two years working in this department. And what I love to do is so many aspects of this, but my favorite is working as a CFE. I'm a certified fraud examiner. And so I love to get to work on these cases and really enjoy seeing what we're going to talk about today actually panning out in practice and picking up on those things and so I'm also a CPA with an audit background but definitely this is my my beloved if you will.
1: So would you say you practice fraud?
0: I would not say I practice fraud. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I would say I enjoy what would I say to that? I enjoy reviewing people who do practice fraud and finding that fraud. is Okay, finding that fraud. Great. Yes. I, just, yes. I just
1: want to be sure, sure I got that one clear. Okay. Paul, Paul, what is it that you do and what brought you here today? Absolutely, Kevin. Appreciate
2: the opportunity to be here. So I'm a colleague of Sarah Beth. Uh, my name is Paul Perry. I'm the manager. I'm sorry. I'm the member of uh, the um, Security Risk <laughs> and Controls Group here at Warren Averitt. Uh, I have been with Warren Avery about 17 and a half years, uh, started off as a financial statement auditor. uh, And for the last six years or so, I have been in charge of all of our control-based projects, right? So anything controls related, and, and in that is internal controls or internal audit. And so... From the fraud perspective, you know, a lot of times when we are working a fraud case, I get brought in as the data analyst to look at the information and to, and to gather all of the indicators that are out there and try to put them into a story. And then I give them, turn them over to our CFEs like Sarah Beth, and, and they go a little bit further with it. And so, um, you know, from, from this perspective, as a financial statement auditor, you see a lot of right and wrong in companies, and you know the avenues people take to commit fraud. And so, Um, What we do from that perspective is just, you know, following the following the rabbit down, whatever hole we have to follow it down and however many we have to follow it down uh, just to kind of get to, you know, was fraud occurring? How did it occur? What was the avenue? How much was taken Uh, and looking for multiple avenues sometimes. So just happy to be here and happy to talk about
1: this. Okay, Paul, I got to say it's not often I hear data analyst and excitement in the same sentence whatsoever so that you did that is awesome.
2: So I'm the biggest nerd in in any room that I come into usually because I have the i t background, the data analyst background and the CPA background um, and for the i t folks, I just bring a personality right because they don't have any right and so I know I know, but I can say that because i'm 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 on both sides of that uh, of that coin there.
1: I, but I love it, too. So, anybody out there who's got, a, you know, a friend, a colleague, somebody going into data analyst, tell them it actually can be fun and it can be sexy, too. Now, let me tell you how I, I met these two and how they ended up being on the payments podium. It was at a recent AFP event in Alabama, and these two got up and started talking about fraud, and they started telling these stories about fraud. And here's the payments professor, you know, a couple of decades working in payments. I thought I've seen and heard it all. And then they get to this list of fraud indicators of things that they have found from their research, from their time in the industry that some of those things were brand new to me or some of them I hadn't looked at in the way that they were presenting it. So I said, can you guys come on the payments podium and maybe talk a little bit about these fraud indicators, the things you've seen, the things you've uncovered, the things that you know to now go look for when you're working in fraud. Now, what I found was really interesting is let's start off with what the number one indicator was up there. Was it men or was it women committing the fraud? What happens there, guys?
0: Uh, it was overwhelmingly men.
1: Overwhelmingly men but women still more
0: so. uh no that's not the case both the average and the median was more for men than women so just trying to just,
2: help us out just trying to help yeah, us out
0: no struck out on all three
1: okay so that was one of the first ones what was like okay if you go from there what are some of the next things that you find when it comes at looking at the different indicators that are there
0: well one thing that We need to start off by talking about is just living beyond means. When you look at fraud cases, overwhelmingly you see that living beyond means is present. As a matter of fact, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners has a report they issue every year, and it's the Report to the Nations. And since 2008, that has been the number one red flag shown in all in fraud cases has been living beyond means.
1: Seeing like real examples of that, yeah. So anytime we go into
2: a fraud investigation, or we, or we go to a company that says, I think I suspect fraud or I don't know what's going on. Uh, I will always do a parking lot test. Right. And so as we're walking in, I will find the two most expensive vehicles on the parking lot. And I will say, who do those belong to just general inquiry? Hey, you know what? I'm a car guy. I really like that Maserati. Who does that belong to? And if it's not the CEO or the CFO, I'm like, okay, now that's the person we want to go investigate. Right. So that's one aspect aspect of it. Um, we have seen everything from houses being built that, you know what, maybe there's a maybe there's a trust fund. Maybe there is um, another means to purchase a house that is over a million dollars by an AP clerk. I've yet to find it in
1: anything other than a
2: fraud case.
1: Yeah. So if the teller is wearing Prada and driving a Mercedes, that is an indicator, right?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, close behind it is financial difficulties. And so that makes complete sense, because if you're living behind your beyond your means, you're having some financial difficulties in all likelihood.
1: And and, well, I don't know about you, but I find people actually share that information. That's one of those TMI things you end up finding about your coworkers is they'll share that. Hey, I am really struggling right now. Do you see that as well when you're doing in some of your cases that it was known that these people were having difficulties?
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: I would say that
2: um, we definitely start asking the the questions and people just want to open up. People just want, you know, tell me about so-and-so, tell me about this. And I remember one case we were working and when we got to interviewing everybody, everybody had something different to say about the person that eventually was the one uh, committing the fraud. And. The other uh, executive CFO was in the room and at at the end of like the fifth or sixth one, he went, oh, my gosh, I've heard every single one of those, but I've never heard them all together. And that was our whole point. And I think that's something that the indicator shows when you when you read those report to the nations is um, there's going to be multiple indicators, multiple red flags in any fraud case. Right. So when you hear things. don't, don't dismiss just one red flag. Oh, that's the first thing I've heard of bad about this person. That's the first thing I've heard. You've got to take that and that becomes a data point and you've got to put all of those data points together and go, oh my gosh, we got eight red flags. And, and to be honest, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a joke about this, but whenever Sarah Beth and I go into one of these, we usually have a conversation at the beginning just on hearing kind of the outside of it, and we'll say things like it's probably X, Y, and Z, and we're probably going to find it in A, B, and C, right? And so we we know that because most everybody does the same indicators.
1: Now, I wonder on some of that, too, is it's one of those things like, any of y'all got that friend that you know they've got this one problem, like, let's say, loud and obnoxious That might be me I'm describing, but somebody who's loud and obnoxious and everybody else sees it, but they don't see it because they're just too deep in it. It, Would it be a situation that's kind of like that, that like in this case, everything was there. They just weren't putting the pieces together because they're so deep in it themselves. They just don't see it happening.
0: That's a big piece of it. And another big piece is just having that element of trust. Most of the time, there is some big level of trust that they have with that employee. And so they just, you know, you some say you see what you want to see. You don't see what you don't want to see. And, you know, it's just kind of this justification in your mind and my dismissal of they would never do that. You know, I they just if they you know, I was working on a case where the CFO literally told me I didn't believe they would ever steal money because I knew if they needed it, they could come to me and I would give them a company loan. He was and I, and he was like, so it never occurred to me that they would commit fraud because I just thought they would come ask me about it. And that's that level of trust and that relationship they had was so deep And he felt like the clerk would be confident to just come talk to him about that. And so he talked about how he has really lost a friend through that and how it's been devastating. And he went through like a full grief cycle with it. And it was very difficult for him and still is to this day. It's been five years and he still talks about it every time I see him.
1: You know, I I could only imagine the the betrayal that you would have to feel in those types of situations because you are trusting that person and and they become part of your family. Uh, On a lot of these businesses, I'm sure, too, the smaller ones. All right. That's so we've got people building houses who are having financial difficulties or the parking lot test. I love the parking lot test. Uh, I'm going to probably be using that one in my future endeavors, too. I'm going to have to say, well, what are some of the other things that, hey, you know, most likely this would be the person committing fraud? Like I remember one of the things you said is a lot of them are actually university graduates.
0: Yes, that is the overwhelmingly they're university graduates. And I think that stems from. The fact that oftentimes they're in a higher position of power where they have more access to things, they're probably given more trust into multiple aspects of the organization. And they probably see enough that they have a good understanding of how they could commit a fraud and it not be detected or not be detected timely because they have access to bury it, if you will. And so university graduates are not only committing more fraud, but they're much more expensive when they do commit fraud.
1: Really? So, not, I guess maybe they got to pay out those student loans. So, they're not only most likely the ones committing the fraud, but they get more out of it?
0: Yes, that is the case for sure. Okay, and, and I, I got to ask be- is there
1: any one specific university we should be looking out for?
0: Well, that's a tough question. And I, I have some thoughts on that, but uh, I think we'll refrain from answering it. <laughs> Paul, do you, do you have anybody you want to throw under the bus? Uh,
2: I don't have anybody I want to throw under the bus. Uh, and it depends on what state somebody is listening at this from. I, I, I don't want to pick the wrong one.
0: Yes, <laughs> Paul and I are in Alabama. So we have a big Auburn-Alabama uh, rivalry going on in the state. So we, we plead the fifth.
1: Well, I'm in Florida and we got this big Florida, Alabama thing going on here in the past (laughs) few years, too. So we will go ahead and move on from that. But I do wonder if there are any numbers out there of people who've actually convicted of what schools that they did go to, what that would look like. Because it'd be interesting because, you know, being here in Tampa, some of us might say they're probably from. But we're going to move on. And on that, too, the other thing is the being convicted part. That, that is one of the things that you guys also mentioned that you don't always see people get convicted, even though they get caught. How does that happen?
2: You know, it's um, one of those things where um, you first you got to you got to look at the company and, and usually they don't convict from the perspective of bad PR. Right. They, they, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. That company's been around for for decades generations and centuries. And we just don't want that bad PR, that bad press. Uh, and what happens there um, is when somebody is not convicted, they go and history will repeat itself sometimes and they will go and they will do it again. And so now they've just basically unloaded the problem onto somebody else. Um, sometimes it's, it's the money aspect of it, right? Because I've already lost, you know, X amount of dollars. Or do I need to go spend another hundred thousand dollars to determine how much it was and convict them. So it 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 will heavily weigh on the the owners of the organization or the people that are in power um to decide on whether to do it. And I would say that I think it's like a 50-50 thing, right? Um, most of the time uh you know they're not gonna convict. Uh, there may be cases where they do. Uh and it's it's really I, I cannot argue on either. I can't argue for or against either side because I can realize how hard either would be.
0: Actually, a statistic here in front of me related to why organizations declined to refer cases to law enforcement and 46 percent listed that internal discipline was sufficient and they thought that they had dealt with it in their way and internally and didn't need to involve anyone else. And that is why you see a lot of repeat offenders. You see people who worked at one organization and did something fraudulent, and they may be allowed to stay on, or they may be let go down the road, and then they commit a fraud, and then it comes to find out there's this background. And Paul actually has a really good story about that. And-
1: Well, you just said background, previous records. Is that ever play into your investigations? Do you ever find people actually have a history of doing this already? Kevin, this is,
2: this is one of those ridiculous things where you just kind of, it's one of those things when you say it, every time I say it, I still don't believe it. And the people in the room always don't usually believe it, but it was the case. And in this one case we were, we were looking at, um, I think it was an employee of about 18 or 20 years. And, um, when, when we got to the point of, yes, there was fraud committed, um, and, I would say a month, two months into um, the the project or the engagement, for whatever reason, we asked for the HR file. And I don't remember why we didn't get it up front or maybe we got it up front. We didn't look at it completely. We went to the first thing. So the bottom of that file, the first thing in there was a previous conviction of fraud, of stealing money from a company. And I kind of went to the, the owners and I was like, uh, what? Like, this would have been the thing to say after I suspect somebody is committing fraud, right? This is the second thing you tell me. And they said, well, you know, that was the case. Uh, and they didn't have access to cash for the first eight, 10 years. And then they started to build the trust and we trusted her. And, and all I can do is just shake my head. And all I can do is just say history sometimes repeats itself and you've got to be careful. And you've, you, even if, even if they have built up trust and they, and I, and I do think people, this is a whole other podcast probably. I do think people can be redeemed and can make some changes. But, you know, when you when you give somebody that much control over something, it's it's hard for them not to fall back into the same uh, the same issue.
0: And well, we've also uh-huh. had a situation where the owner was aware of this and that was intentionally designed to not give that person access. But then the owner transitioned into retirement. It was a family business. The son came through, had no idea. and. Guess what? He promoted her up, had no idea. This comes to light. So we definitely see that repeat offender aspect.
1: So in other words, you have basically a redemption in that that case. The owner knows this person's had a history, has controls in place. There's a good topic to really get to, too. But because that wasn't communicated in the let's call it the so-called changing of the guard, then the controls got relaxed and let down. What are some of the other indicators? I would love to talk about controls, but let's wait before we get there. Maybe we save that for a part two. What are some of the other indicators that you see? Because I mean, the previous records, the different cases of like the financial difficulties, the people that are living beyond their means, is there anything else that, hey, you should probably be looking for this?
0: My absolute favorite one, because I do on the side, some business process reviews where I go through and document an organization's process and look for where controls exist, where there are gaps. And so there's a lot of interviews in that. And my favorite thing that I hear over and over is I just don't have time to take vacation. I just don't have time to take vacation or I'm so overwhelmed. I need help. And then we come through and we're like, well, what if we reallocated this task to this person? And then that would take something off your plate and they don't want to give it up. And those are immediate red flags for me. The thought of I have to be here and the thought of I am too scared to give this up because if I give it up, something could come to light. And of course there are people who, that's not the situation, but by and large, when we offer in a fraud situation to say, well, let's take something off your plate, they are immediately defensive. And oftentimes when we go to, Management, we're like, well, they just feel like they can't take a vacation doing these separate business process reviews, mm-hmm. and they will say, yes, they can. We we can allocate that. That's not a problem. And so we immediately tell them, hey, you should. We should look into some things probably. So that's that's my favorite one because we hear it all the time.
2: And I would say that COVID really pushed a lot of this to light. Right. So when on or about March 17th of 2020, um, everybody went home and for two or three months, nobody came back into the office. And there were there were a lot of phone calls and not just with us and our firm and our, and our client base. But I talked to folks that do what we do across the country. And we've all seen an increase in these types of projects because. Nobody had their processes documented. Everybody got sent home. And then all of a sudden, all the stuff that was being covered up is coming to light left and right. Right. And so a lot of this really came to light now in COVID. And we are, it, it, the industry is seeing a boom in, we didn't, you know, and now people are leaving companies and going to do other things. And you've got institutional knowledge walking out the door. And then all of this stuff starts coming to light. And so I would say the last year and a half has not been kind. Um, to uh, companies from a uh, fraud and a, you know, just an understanding of business uh, perspective.
1: You know, what's funny is I'm one of those that always finds a way to see the good side of things. So it almost sounds like one of the good things of COVID is the fact that it was able to expose for companies that were unwilling to see some of this or weren't seeing the whole picture like you're talking about before and become more aware of they need to be doing something about it.
0: In 2020, 11% of the cases that were looked at by that Association of Certified Fraud Examiners in the report to the nations, 11% of the people who perpetrated the fraud were no longer with the organization. I will be very interested to see in 2021 and 2022, as people have transitioned jobs, if more fraud is found as new people are stepping into things and that number goes up. And so it's found. After the fact is what we're saying with that 11%. And so do we see an uptick in that in the next couple of years?
1: So if we were to make like a bold prediction, because one of the things that I do as a payments professor, every year I'm asked to make predictions of what's going to happen this year in payments. And if you were to make a bold prediction of in the world of fraud, you might, might, you know, cause it's prediction. It's not fact. You know, I'm not trying to hold you to this, but you might say be saying that we haven't uncovered all of it yet that there's still more that's going to be exposed as time goes on?
0: Absolutely. I would say that's a pretty safe bet to take. Paul, what do you think?
1: I I absolutely agree with that. I I would buy stock in that prediction myself, folks. I might borrow it from you this year. I'll definitely have to give you credit, but, um, Uh, That one to me is kind of enlightening because in the banking industry where I I do a lot of focus more in electronic banking on the banking side, working with the banks, working with the credit unions and get over into the corporate side. Some, you know, to be able to help them Well, in certain states in the banking side of things, they are required to take a minimum of a week off like they have to take a consecutive week off to be able to do this. But we flip it over and on the corporate side, that's not happening, though. And so that's where a lot of the weakness is on their side of things and, and it's causing that exposure. So that, that's huge stuff right there. Anything else along those lines to be aware of?
2: I would say that um, forced vacation, right? So don't just let somebody pick which week they're gonna be gone or pick, oh, I need to be here on a Friday so I can only travel, you know, Monday to Thursday or whatever the case is. Um, I have I have seen some organizations look at it and go, you know what? Everybody's going to get two weeks, but you get to pick one week and then we're going to pick the other week for you.
1: Ooh.
0: I was going to say what's interesting in touching on what you were just speaking on, Kevin, is that only 53% of the frauds looked at in 2020 related to asset misappropriation only. And so what the remaining was a mix of asset misappropriation, but also financial statement fraud and corruption. And so certainly those are things you see a heavy uptick on the corporate side as well.
2: Absolutely, and the banks—you know—that's where a lot of the the money is flowing th- through, obviously. And um, you know, there's going to be—I I would say—for your financial institution and credit union companies that that listen to this, you may see an uptick in requests for old bank statements, right? Because. That's when, when we're going in and we're investigating, we want to see actually what hit the bank. We want to see copies of checks. We want to see those kinds of things. And so, you're you're probably going to see in the next year an uptick. Maybe already have seen an uptick in those types of external requests, just because companies uh, need the help in looking at that.
0: We've actually seen the need to go straight to the bank to get the bank statements with the copies of checks attached because we've been in cases where we pull check copies that they've kept on site. And then when we happen to get the bank statement or looking, the check copy does not match what actually is a part of the bank statement and what's showing there. And they've like gone and whited out stuff and like made it look legitimate. So it looks like they're making out this check to the power company. And instead they're making it out to themselves. and the ultimate test is to go back to those bank statements and see what actual payees were on those checks
1: not the statements they that the employee is giving you but the statements directly from the bank i have said that one before and people are like you're crazy and i explained to them with the way the world works today you can get on uh, there's all kinds of websites that are out there that offer, you know, personal virtual assistance. I've hired them as a payments professor to do like graphics work for me. Let me be clear. I didn't hire them to commit fraud or anything like that. I hired them to do like graphics work for me, but they have told me, you know, we can make any document look any way you want. And it, what's the difference in taking a bank statement and being able to change the things around on the bank statement and making it look exactly like a real one?
0: This is not exactly along those lines, but it is a story that I like to tell about an expense reimbursement where uh, someone kept submitting this expense for flight travel. They, You know, air travel, they were salesmen in their job. They were doing things along those lines. Travel was not unexpected. And Paul will tell this part better than me, but where they had the same flight on every, I'm sorry, the same seat on every flight. And that triggered something. But I've also seen where they responded to an email to like change the amount or the date. And, you know, in Outlook, when you make an edit, it like changes it to blue or it used to. I think now it adds your name. But it, and it so when you printed the actual support, it showed up in blue that they had just like changed the amount. And it was kind so of so that's a
1: blue flag, not a red flag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that was kind <laughs> of indicative that something was odd that he was changing the actual number in the confirmation. but I
1: want to be clear on this. You had somebody doing expense reimbursements that were phony and they were in the same seat on the same plane every single time. Yeah. A lot of the people out there, my listeners, followers, we've traveled a lot and know that just doesn't even happen. Even Southwest where you pick your own seat, which (laughs) doesn't show up on the bill anyway, you you just don't get the same seat every time.
0: That was a Mr. Paul Perry found that uh, observation.
1: Well, and it
2: was one of those things where you just kind of, you step back and you go kind of what's common sense, right? And, and a lot of the things that we find, you step back and go, how could somebody, and you just, you know what? My mind can't get there for some things, right? Because, because I don't, because I don't practice fraud. That's not something that um, just automatically comes to my mind. And so when we sit here and we go through these cases, we think we know what we're we know what we're looking for, and we I will admit on almost every case, I'm still surprised at things. you know what it's you know, got to be fun to have a job
1: that keeps you surprised right
0: that is that's why I told you I enjoy this so much and I wasn't kidding I mean it's you're always learning something new and there's a great what's the word to even use for that great satisfaction in learning something new I'm not even sure how to articulate that.
1: Well, I got to tell you, I'm learning a lot of things new, but we're also running out of time. Can I get you guys to come back for a part two? Absolutely. We'd love it.
0: Yes, because we still haven't talked about one of my favorite statistics. So we need to grab that one next time.
1: Okay, there we go. There is the cliffhanger of the day, folks. All of you out there listening, I know you've got to be enjoying this conversation. We're going to have to have a part two on it. We're going to have to bring Paul and Sarah Beth back, and we're going to have to find out what is Sarah Beth's favorite statistic that's out there? Okay, for the rest of you, for all of you out there, if there is a topic you would like to hear on the Payments Podium, all you gotta do is send an email to kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. If there's somebody you think should be on the Payments Podium, send me an email. You know, I'll do all I can to be able to get them on the show for you. We are here to be able to serve you, educate you wherever we can, and when we can provide a little bit of entertainment. But you guys know how it goes for today, class dismissed.
0: Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast check back every Thursday for a conversation with the payments professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.